out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Jeremy Gluck, one-time member of the Barracudas, plus a lot of other bands as well and he's also got a very prolific solo um, career as well which has been going on which we'll find out more about in the interview but just to say that Jeremy is currently undertaking a part-time fine art PhD and is editor of SWND which is the Australian media company Madcap Global that includes radio print and digital media plus label releases, live music and video production, changing the way Wales interacts with the world. And um, I do believe he's got a series of reissues of his solo recordings that are planned later on in the year on the SWND label. You'll find out more information if you go to his Facebook page. Just go for Jeremy Gluck. Um, anyway, look, this is the interview. Lots of fantastic information about this, so do take notes. I will test you at the end. So um, after several minutes of casual chat with Jeremy, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Jeremy, it's over to you. Well, in terms of like what you just said, I mean, I, I was buying music. I'm about six years older than you, so I was buying music uh, eight years who knows, but I was buying music um, when I was about 12. But the main event for me was my, uh, my older brother, when I was 13, um, bequeathed to me a number of albums that he'd worn out that he was going to re- replace his copies of, one of which was Stooges Funhouse, White Light, White Heat by, Vol- by the Velvet Underground, and especially um, Meaty Beady Big and Bouncy, which was a compilation of Who singles that was released around that time. Uh, and there was another album, the name of which escapes me, uh, but in any case, those three should be enough. So those really began my uh, primary interest in, in music, which I was already well aware of, thanks to my older brothers who were seven years older, having been, coming up in the 60s with everything that was happening then. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, from the early 70s, of course, I got into glam, uh, which wasn't as big a deal in Canada where I grew up, but there's wonderful things back then called deletion bins. Some may be aware of where you would get an album that had been deleted by the record company because it wasn't selling. And I'd get those for 99 cents or $2 at the local record store. And a lot of the glam albums came to Canada that way because uh, they all bombed mostly. Yeah. Um, uh, so that was a big formative influence on me too, including Bowie. I mean, I had a copy of The Man Who Sold the World. That was my first Bowie album. That made a huge impression. Yes. Absolutely, side two, especially. There was very strange, very strange songs. Running Gun Blues, Magic. Yeah, absolutely. And what was your and what was your family life like? What were your parents? Were they at all sort of musical or bohemian? <laughs> no, uh, my parents were quite a bit older than most of my friends' uh, parents because they'd had children quite late. Um, uh, the result of which was, I mean, that you know, my mother was very into popular music, but it was from the nineteen thirties and forties, which was great. But my father was very into classical music, which, to my eternal shame, I never really picked up in my own DNA. Um, 
because my older brother was my big formative musical influence. You know, my parents were um, were not um, of a generation that were very interested in, uh, you know, say early rock and roll the way some of my friends' parents were. Yes, and was um because you must have been slightly more aware of the late sixties than say I was, who was not really aware yeah. of the late sixties at all. Did that? I mean, being in Canada, did that have much of a you know, what we refer to as the sort of the counterculture hippie vibe about it. Uh, very much so, because even though I was quite young, I mean, uh, say at mid to late 60s, I would have been about, uh, I don't know, seven, eight to about 12, 13. So, yeah, so I was about 12 or 13 at the turn of the 70s. I mean, uh, yeah, it was in the air. You know, I often reflect on this for one reason or another. Um, it was in the air and my parents were quite liberal intellectuals on that spectrum so they were very much uh, aware of the uh, political and social upheavals that were happening at that time so i might have been somewhat unusually aware compared to some of my peers of all that sort of um world you know the zeitgeist as they say Yes, absolutely. And I guess you'd have vaguely picked up on the Vietnam War going oh, on. Oh, more than vaguely. I mean, like, for example, my I have to keep on referring to him because at the time, a very big influence or presence in my life was my older brother. But for example, because he was seven years older, he very much was part of the culture ca- <laughs> culture <laughs> counter. Anyway, whatever. Uh, <laughs> counter culture, culture counter. Yes. And um, he... Um, I mean, for example, you know, he actually knew people who had uh, um, come to Canada on the so-called underground rail- railway of its time to escape the draft. I remember he had a few people, even who I would have known at the time, who would come and go. And that was his kind of circle. It was very, very much involved in it. So, of course, it, vicariously, I picked a lot of that up. It was quite vivid to me. It wasn't just something rather nebulous. Yes, absolutely. And then during the 70s, you would have been, because I was far too young for things like punk, but you would have been an ideal age, really, of the sort of the whole explosion. And as you'd been into the Stooges and also Velvet Goldmine, you would have, um, no, underground, Jesus. Yes, please. Get a grip, David, there. <laughs> I know. Sorry about that. I was thinking of the, the all right. film. Let's be professional now. <laughs> Standards. Um, <laughs> Velvet. No, underground. No, there yes. was a film. Velvet <laughs> I'll make you repeat it 10 times. I know. I'll just make sure no one missed that one. Um, so were you, So was punk something that you went, yes, this is it. I'm, I'm right here. I'm in the right place at the right time. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, I could quote you verbatim in that respect. Because in fact, like in the 60s, I mean, by the time I was coming of age with music taste, which is the genesis of which I just sort of outlined, I had this sense, like in the early 70s, before punk was on the horizon, that I'd missed it. You know, I'd, because I was too young in the 60s, I'd missed this incredible revolution, you know, which it was, um, you know. And I was determined consciously, I had the sense that if anything like that, quote unquote, happened again, I wouldn't miss it. So when punk did start coming over the horizon, which would have been about, 74 75 but really 76 when things like horses came out um 
Well, how could you say things like horses? There's no other thing like horses. It's totally unique as an album. Uh, but um, that, you know, I got the ball rolling. So, and then there was, you know, um, it's funny because there was a magazine called Rock Scene when I was a teenager, which was very big in, uh, in, in America, North America, run by these two people, Lisa and Richard Robertson, who, Robinson, sorry, who were, uh, publishers and writers from New York, I think, or at least they were based in New York. But in any case, it was totally on top of the whole scene, you know, in New York as it was happening, you know. So when bands like Television and Patti Smith started coming up, and especially Ramones, I went OMG. Um, and I remember, the funny thing is, I was, I had an obsession with the Ramones and months before I'd even heard them, I'd see, you know, any before they'd even released anything, um, they were already quite a big thing happening in New York. People had noticed them pretty hard to miss them really. But in any case, they were in this magazine and I was putting pictures of them up on my wall. I'd never even heard them, but I had this supernatural premonition that this was the band, you know, and sure enough, when I did get their first album, it did, you know, I, this is often said now, but I mean, the Ramones were the Beatles of my generation in terms of if you were into punk, quote unquote, but they had that impact. They had that power. You know, they totally changed everything for me. And I went and saw them. They played a gig in Toronto in late 1976, where I was living at the time. Um, and um, <laughs> it was one of their first gigs outside New York, but they, you know, these gigs are legendary. I mean, I was lucky to see them that early in their, in their career. And they came in, they were playing this crappy old beat up uh, theater in Toronto called the New Yorker, which was a great place to see bands. I saw quite a few bands are like cramps. But anyway, they come on. I was like captivated. I mean, utterly, you know, and they played two 23 minute sets, might have been 22 minutes, each comprising the same 14 songs, uh, about half an hour apart. It was ecstasy. I mean, it was like, you know, my Damascene conversion, really. And then nothing was ever the same. I went back to, and it's like the Beatles, you know, once the, you know, like everyone's thought I can do that. I can start a band, you know, and I was one of those people. I went back to my little room and I dreamt my dreams. And then in early 77, mid uh, spring 77, then I went to London for the first time and arrived in the summer of punk. I mean, my timing was superb, you know, I got there in May 77. I planned to go all around Europe. Uh, but instead, I spent almost all my time in London because I fell in love with it hopelessly and met a lot of cool people and did a lot of cool things and saw dozens and dozens of gigs. Um, and that really was the beginning of what became my emigration the following year when I started the band. Yes, that's interesting because I do. And I wish I could remember now, but that was one of those interviews a few months ago a long time lots of past but they mentioned that they'd supported the Ramones or what or saw them and they said when they were backstage kind of in their changing rooms they went through the whole set you know backstage and then they went and did it live and they said I've never seen anything quite like it it was most bizarre and so they obviously they were very tight with their kind of um, performance. Well I think you know it's famously known now that Johnny Ramone was quite a strict <laughs> Because he came from a, an army family, people who are Ramones fans will know all this anyhow. But you know, he was really into. He was a very, a very right wing, militaristic, old school American into baseball and hating commies and so on. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, he ran that band like a, a crypto fascist, you know, and I mean, Joey especially found it very hard because of his mental health condition. I shouldn't laugh, but this is all Ramon's legend now. I know if, if anyone out there hasn't seen End of the Century, which is a documentary about the band, very moving, actually, very powerful and exciting. But you see Johnny, basically, you know, he drilled them like a Marine sergeant, you know, and that was part of it. Yes. You know, that they had to, and, they, you know, they were insanely tight. I mean, you know, uh, it was it was unreal, you know. And you'd think, oh, well, it wasn't that hard to be that tight because, you know, they're playing these sort of songs, uh, like coloring book songs. But don't kid yourself, there was a genius in the Ramones, which is rarely seen in popular music, a real genius. And just because they didn't write songs as complex as someone like the Beach Boys, ask yourself why someone like Phil Spector took an interest in them, you know, because he could see they had that, that magical property that greatness has in, in rock and roll. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And did you see yeah. the Danny Fields film? No, I haven't seen that yet, you know, but I really want to. Yes, that that kind of highlights a lot about the Ramones, and uh, and also there was a brilliant documentary recently about Robert Lloyd from the Nightingales, oh. and, um, and I don't know if you've seen that either, but that was on no. Sky Arts recently. But there's a whole bit with Robert Lloyd going to London and meeting the Ramones, and also Danny Fields, which is kind of I won't spoil it all, but it's a lovely story, and that will blow your mind. So then in London, seventy-seven, you go back to Canada and then come back to London in seventy-eight. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, it's funny because, I mean, I'll keep this short, but when I was a, a, about 12, I had this obsession with London, which was, if people believe in things like reincarnation, fate, destiny, and all the rest of that hoo-ha was there. But um, it was a big part of my awareness, and I was obsessed with going to London, you know, so eventually, through a small inheritance, I was, uh, I was able to do that, you know, and um, but before I did the first time, um, oh no, sorry. Well, the first time I went, I was still living with my parents in Ottawa. So yeah, I spent about a chunk of time in London in, in the summer of 1977. It was tremendously exciting. And as fate would have it, um, uh, one of the few contacts I was given by a friend of mine who'd been in London the previous year was some guy who I rang up who then happened, just happened to work with Stuart Joseph, who was the manager of Generation X. So I ended up hanging out with, well, becoming aware of and seeing Generation X and all sorts of adventures with them. And they're still one of my favorite bands. Um, and, uh, and so it went. So yeah, I came back from London. I was totally like, I remember because I think Elvis started a day or two after I got back. Uh, so it was August 77. I worked in, I moved to Toronto, saw lots of great bands. I was gonna form a band in Toronto, but I was obsessed with going to London because what had happened in London in the summer of 77 was I met Robin Wills in a club with whom I formed the band eventually. That was like, that was fate. I mean, I was in the speakeasy, which was a great club at the time. Loads of people hung out in musos, journos, uh, you know, all sorts. And I, I remember I was talking to some woman um, about stuff and she was saying, what are you into? And I said, oh, garage punk. Now at this time, no one really knew what that was in the 60s sense, apart from people who own nuggets of whom I was one. Mm. And um, I was talking to this woman quite innocently, and I saw this kind of weird little guy hanging around, lurking. I was thinking, this is freaky. <laughs> Why is he listening to our conversation? You know, 
So then she's like, I go into the bar. I was like, okay. And he sort of darts up and I'm thinking, uh-oh. And he get well, I know mugged. He was too short for that, but something. And starts saying, were you just talking about the seeds, which I had been? And I was like, yes. And it was like this weird scene out of a 60s Cold War film, like the microfilm drop or the password, you know. And he, was, he just started asking me, saying, oh, you're into garage punk. I was saying, oh, yeah, you know, from way back, you know, I have nuggets. I mean, all this stuff like the seeds and standells and all this junk. <laughs> and then, you know, we became inseparable then while, uh, while I was in London quite a bit. And we kept in touch. We had things called letters back then, young people. Yes. And we actually wrote letters. Nice. And one day he wrote me a letter. Of course, he was in a band. Every, everyone was in a band, like literally. You could walk up to anyone under 25 in London at that time and say, are you in a band? And they'd go, yes, and start telling you about it because it <laughs> happened to me. I, I tried it as a kind of social experiment. And um, in any case... He wrote me one day and I was like, yeah, I had a great job in Toronto. It was fun. And I was having a great time, um, you know, living away from home for the first time and all this stuff. And um, <laughs> he said, oh, if you ever come back to London for a holiday, which I'd said was my plan. Oh, you could sing a song with my new band as a kind of, you know, fun night out. And I this voice said to me, like on the Mount Sinai of my life, you know, go to London, join band. <laughs> so, I, so I wrote him back took like five days you couldn't do it in a second in those days and i said the hell with it i'm not going to come and sing a song i'm going to sing all the goddamn songs i'm going to join your band and he was like great because we got on like the house on fire at the time and so i did and in march 78 i packed up myself off to heathrow with a few possessions including some albums for robin that i'd gotten rare garage punk albums and uh the rest is uh you know the story Yes. So did you form, did you, was that the band that became the Barracudas? Yeah, I mean, when I arrived in 78, that was trippy because I got there, you know, I was pretty jet lagged and Robin said, oh, you know, I've got the band together. He had a drummer and a bassist in place. Uh, and they said, oh, we went to the drummer's flat, if you can dignify it with that term. And um, first, I, I was like barely aware of what was happening because I was so jet lagged and sort of buzzing, you know. And uh, Robin throws on, I think it was like Clash City Rockers, which had just been released. And I said, that sounds like the Beatles, which for some reason amused him. He was, thought it was hilarious. And I thought it was quite, you know, uh, you know intelligent uh, analysis. But anyway, uh, that's the first thing I remember happening. And the rest rolled from there. So we did four, we had a band. We started playing little gigs, uh, some memorable, some not various lineup changes and we had a lineup that did exist for a while but then eventually the bass player and, and, and drummer left they were brothers and then we found uh, Nick Turner because we were involved with these people we all hung out in different squats and stuff with people we knew these people who hung out at Hornsey Art College like one of the bands there became the Raincoats who were quite well known yeah and um uh, anyway, Nick Turner knew them, uh, and he became our drummer, and then, I don't know what was happening, we needed a bassist, and Robin, I think he went to the famous gig that was like the Damned and some other people played, oh, it's escaping me now, but anyway, and he came back and he was very excited, and he said, oh, I met this guy, this tall American guy, who has a haircut just like Roger McGinn from The Birds, I was like, great, you know. You know, he could be our bass player. And I, I said, oh, great. Does he play bass? Robin went, no, I'll teach him, which is wonderful, really. <laughs> which he did. 
but he he was hired on his haircut, you know. Yes, and know. Um, that's 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 rock and roll. That is rock and roll indeed. I think that's, <laughs> I know. That's a, I think <laughs> you can't make it up. The bass the bass ba- is one of those instruments, isn't it? Some that I've come across a lot of people who played it because they were asked to to do it. Yeah, um, well, no one really wants to. I mean, as I'm fond of saying, David, you know, us singers we refer to the, the guitarists as the help, and. Um, Really, what they play or don't play is of little concern. Yes, and no one's watching them. So that's no, all quite. good. So they shouldn't be encouraged. <laughs> should be in the background. See, David Bowie did that, didn't he? He sort of worked yeah. badly. He didn't do badly. No, he, he did. It worked for him. But then, yes, so did you feel that there was a magic energy with the band? I think I would have felt there was, you know, there was a magic energy with any band, just in the sense that I was dreaming of being in a band from like when I was 12 and especially in London and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I mean, Robin and I had a great chemistry at the beginning. We were very close friends. We had a good uh, chemistry writing songs. And um, when the original lineup that eventually made Dropout formed, which was me, Robin, Nick Turner and Dave Buckley, the Bird's haircut man. Um, yeah, you know, we, we did some some great gigs. And in fact, like a lot of bands, especially punk bands, well, maybe not especially, but in any case, we, um, a lot of our best, you know, a lot, a lot of our golden gigs and best gigs were the ones we played, you know, before we'd even recorded really, much less done anything more glamorous, like recorded for record labels and stuff, just in pubs and crappy clubs and just really raw and intense. Uh, and, you know, we could barely play, but I mean, that was great. So yeah, it was very magical. And I remember the first time we made, we made one set of demos, but the first, and that was cool. But the, when we first made our first single, I Want My Woody Back, which was in a, a little studio in Soho called Free Range. Then I remember when I walked out at dawn, because we got a deal, I think it was for two nights or one night, like really cheap. And um, when the studio was dead, I remember walking out into the dawn in Soho. It's poetic, I, I have to say. And I just felt like this is like, I've done it. You know, I've done what I've been dreaming of since I was 12. I guess I was 19 at that point. You know, I've made a record and it's going to be released by a little label and I'm in London. It's just like, it was, it was wonderful, you know? So yeah, magic would describe it. Yes. And with the first album, you recorded this in the famous Rockfield Studios. Yeah, that's what, well, I mean, you know, the Flame and Groovies are writ large, actually, in our story, which we'll get to in a bit, probably, anyhow, uh, because one of them joined us eventually. But, um, yeah, I mean, Robin and I were totally into the Groovies. I mean, when I was a teenager in Ottawa, I had these friends, brothers, both of whom sadly now have passed on. One of them was obsessed with the Stooges, and one of them, Mark Jones, was obsessed with the Flame and Groovies. And I wasn't, I mean, I had teen, a copy of Teenage Head and stuff, but when they, when they went on to Sire and started their more Mersey beat power pop thing, I remember he had this single, you know, on Bomb, Shake Some Action. I mean, yes. you, couldn't, you couldn't hear that without having all your circuits fried. And then, um, you know, the whole Groovies thing became a big deal. So when, when EMI said to us, you know, where do you want to record your album? Like, Robin especially, who was a total Groovies fanatic, which I became actually for their Sire stuff, um, said Rockfield. And of course, in those days, in those far off dreamy days, they went, okay. Because it was, you know, well, it was, they didn't really mind. I mean, wherever you spent the money. And the producers we had, we, we were given eventually, we worked with 
were based there. So yeah, you know, we did two sessions, one in the summer and one in the winter, which were very different sessions because one in the summer was really like, we're at Rockfield, we, you know, we're happening, which we were kind of in a big way in London and stuff. And we did some great recordings, you know, we did a lot of songs that became single A sides. By the winter, the band was in a very different place. Uh, Robin and I weren't close anymore in the way we had been. There was a lot of stuff going on of a chemical nature. There was girlfriends. There was all kinds of stuff that was weirding us out. And it was quite difficult in the winter session, but we got through it. But yeah, it wasn't easy. Whereas the summer session was, was, was dreamy and one of the most enjoyable experiences of my life, I suppose. Yes. How come you had three different producers on that? You had this guy, John oh. David, Kenny, and then Pat Moran. Yeah, well, the way it fell out was like when we when we recorded Summer Fun originally, we wanted like, you know, we wanted an EMI thought. Well, actually, the funny thing is, originally, and speaking of glam, <laughs> we wanted Roy Wood to produce Summer Fun, or at least Robin did, because he was a big fan of Wizard. And... Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, he wanted to do it, but he was busy, which is fair enough. He was very in demand. And then they said, try Kenny Laguna, who had discovered and developed Joan Jett into a star. And he'd worked with a lot of the great bubblegum artists of the 60s, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was a hit songwriter and producer. Now, we didn't really have a chemistry with poor old Kenny. For me, it was great because we recorded the original Summer Fun before Rockfield at Ramport in Battersea, which is the Who's studio. And I'm a total and absolute rabid Who fan. They're my favorite band since I was like 13. And um, that was cool. I mean, you know, I was in the Who's studio, but sadly, that de the original Summer Fun is on an album we released many years after we did it called Through the Mists of Time, a compilation. But it sounds all right. In fact, my vocal's better than the EMI version, but yeah, it didn't really happen. So Kenny was seen off. And then before we started the album, EMI said, well, we've got these two jobbing producers, Pat Moran and John David. And John David is Welsh. I mean, he lives here in Wales. Uh, he's a great guy. Pat's dead now, sadly. A lovely guy, Irish guy, lovely guy. And they were a great team. They never became like big deal producers, but they, you know, they were good, solid, grounded, jobbing producers, which is kind of what we needed. And uh, we went in with them and they got a good sound. You know, we probably... There's a lot of what ifs and this, that, and the other that I won't go into that could have been, but they did the job they were paid to do. And, you know, I got no complaints. Yes. And what was the, because this is a label, which is, this is Zonophone. Well, Zonophone, you know, if you remember like back in, this is 19, you know, when we signed in early, early 80, yeah. Um, all the, there was a thing that happened where the major labels, like, you know, <laughs> it was so transparent, it was a bit annoying. But, you know, they thought, well, we'll, we'll revive or invent new labels that are like indie labels, uh, umbrellaed under major labels. So it looks like they're indie labels. Like no one was going to notice they were being, yeah, it's just, this is like corporate thinking, you know, it's bad news. But anyway, at least for us, it was cool because instead of just giving us some new label, like pretend punk label, they revived Zonophone for quite a few bands. Uh, I think the Angelic Upstarts were one of them. But anyway, yeah, EMI put a load of bands on this. Re, you know, the Zonophone hadn't existed as an EMI, hadn't released anything as an EMI label for years, I think since the 60s. 
So suddenly we were on Zonophone, brackets, EMI, and that's how that happened. And we had wonderful art um, from Malcolm Garrett, who was a world-class, is a world-class artist and is quite famous for his design for people like the Buzzcocks and uh, all sorts of people, Human League and stuff. He became one of the leading art directors of, of, of music packaging of his time. Um, so we benefited from that. By the way, we benefited from a lot of stuff from EMI, but we would have been better off on a different label ultimately. Yes, absolutely. And was it a difficult period being in the band, you know, the early 80s? Because the punk had definitely happened, had come and gone and sort of, as with every scene, gets a bit sort of messy. Then you had that post-punk period of, you know, the sort of interesting but slightly scratchy bands like, you know, Gang of Four, Magazine, Wire, you know, Public Image Limited, The Nightingales, Marky Smith and The Fall. So were you sort of aware of this kind of changing scene as well as kind of a new decade yeah and, and in an awkward way because like we were a band that was lost in time you know we were we were a bit too late and a bit too early you know this is the, the story of the barracudas in a nutshell i mean of course we were aware of it we kind of willfully ignored it or even denigrated it without even really listening to it which is ironic because since then those bands have become some of my favorite bands like the smiths in the fall but at the time uh, we were also much more into american music you know they just weren't british bands making the kind of music we were for the most part so we were well aware of it but it didn't really touch us and then what happened was even though dropout didn't do great business in the uk although it was a, it was all right but what happened was that in europe where where rock and roll quote unquote was a big deal especially cult rock and roll while we were living in penury in london wondering why no one wanted to come and see us outside of london um we started getting these reviews for dropout especially in france and spain they're the new flame and groovies well you know that was like whoa hold on you know so we just then were interested uh, and there was interest in us playing in Europe, which is what we started doing. And really, I got to the point with Britain for a while. I remember saying, you know, having a, not an argument, but a heated discussion with Robin saying, you know, I'm just not going to play outside of London because I can't be bothered. You know, we can go and play all over Europe. They love us. We're like gods in some places like Spain and France and Italy, you know, with the new flame and groovies. We're real rock and roll, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we can deliver that, you know. And then when Chris Wilson joined the band in 1982 from the Flame and Groovies, that was icing on the cake big time, you know, because that was like royalty, you know, and rightfully so. So who needed, you know, who needed Britain outside of London? And we did play the odd gig. It was a waste of time, but, you know, yes. make, a, a week, make a living. But um, nah, you know, we were, we were really for Europe at that point because that's where we were appreciated. There was a sort of the whole, is it sort of slight, is it neo-psychedelic scene that had happened in the early 80s in London? Oh, and then yeah. Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> yeah, in yeah. Well, kind of world. Did, did that not sort of, did that sort of make you feel a bit excited <laughs> or get a bit jiggy? Yeah. Um, well, the problem with that, well, no, that was great because at least we had our little scene. Like I remember, um, it's funny because I forget a lot of stuff and then... <laughs> I wanted to show my kids, in fact, but, you know, I remember at the end of 1981, was it, it was in 80, yeah, late 81, I think, we were playing that scene. 
this is when when EMI was already like these guys are not going to be on this label much longer, you know. And that's a long story I won't go into, but we did find this audience in London on that neo psychedelic scene, and yeah, people loved us. We were the we were the hardest rocking, most intense band. A lot of them were pretty flaky, lovely people, nice music, but your music shouldn't be nice, you know. So um, anyway. I was on the cover of, of Time Out at the time in a kind of psychedelic arts design. And I'll never forget that because, you know, I was living like a dog and the band was in pretty rough shape, really, financially and in every way. And we could see we were going to hit the wall with EMI and the members weren't getting along too well together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I got up one morning after another night, shall we say. And I wandered, I lived in King's Cross and I wandered into Smith's and I look up and there's like this display of like, you know, 10 by 10 issues of the new issue of Time Out with me on the cover. And I was like, I'm not even tripping today, but this is really weird. So, <laughs> um, you know, I went back and just shut the door and thought, don't go out, don't go out, stay in good, go out bad. But um, yeah, we, that, that was a great scene, you know, and I mean... <laughs> In the summer when it started, it, it was really awesome, like the summer of 81. And, you know, we had a great time and we were all wearing the gear and hanging out and living the dream and getting loads of media attention because it was so ridiculous that, you know, reviving all this crap when, when bands like The Fall were starting and stuff, you know, Joy Division. I mean, you know, but anyway, it was a good, it was our it was our it was our sort of scene. But we in a way, we were a rock and roll band purely really you know in the grand tradition i suppose modestly yeah and you know we were a garage punk band and a lot of the bands they they found us a bit difficult because we obviously considered ourselves somehow somehow superior um yeah i think we had more substance than some of them don't get me wrong some of them were marvelous you know and they were all committed to their own thing but i found it hard to take it that seriously sometimes yeah, because you had the Batcave, didn't you? You had that sort of gothic scene with Alien Sex Fiend and Daniela Dax. And, um... Yeah, that brings it back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we obviously weren't goths, but um, uh, uh, no, we were far from goths. Uh, yeah, we may have looked like zombies and had the complexion of vampires, but we weren't goths. Um, no, so gothing wasn't our thing, so to speak. Uh, but no, we played Alice in Wonderland and a lot of those clubs and scenes and parties, you know, there was great parties and people made big efforts to put on gigs in cool places like we played the London Dungeon and all sorts of stuff. I think we played there or at least it was a party I went to there. But anyhow, and that lasted a fair while, you know, and I think it could have really become something. But yeah, it just didn't really gel. The only band who came out of it with any commercial success were Doctor and the Medics, because they covered Spirit in the Sky wisely. Um, But apart from them, no one really made a dent commercially. And, you know, what's, it's kind of like politics now, and they all talk about, you know, in London. Yeah, it was a London thing, really, you know, and it lived and died on those terms. It was great when it was at its height. But I think it it was... um... It was kind of Miles Copeland who was managing Doctor and the Medics who sort of got them to record Spirit in the Sky because I think when he listened to the album, he couldn't hear a hit single, so they had to quickly go back to the studio and do something. And 
that's that's the kind of you know reason for that coming out yeah i mean wisely so i mean miles copeland's no dope god knows yeah i think you know that's the thing i mean the bands were a bit slim on material you know it would be commercial material i mean and also there was a lot of you know it was of course rife with um replicating maybe too closely that's when the barracudas at least were a bit more original in some ways or at least our influences we weren't really i mean we were into psychedelia uh, psychedelic whatever don't get me wrong but me for example i was much more into, into punk whether it was 60s garage punk or the stooges or whatever punk 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 and um we we played hard in that way especially in that period um and we weren't, I mean, we were psychedelic in the sense that we could damage people's brains maybe with some of our sets, but we weren't really playing sort of uh, flower, flower power music. Yes. Did like you ever Ziggy's. see? Go on. I was going to say, did you ever see Hawkwind? I mean, I just wondered if bands uh, are. Nah, but the funny thing is, um, Frenchie Glaude, who, who runs Flickknife Records still, bless him, um, when EMI dumped us, he came to our rescue initially, and he, he hadn't been in London that time, but he started this label called Flickknife. And um, he was smart. He didn't realize it at the time, but he loved Hawkwind. And he bought loads. And when you, you, Universal Artists crashed, he bought a load of their master tapes for next to nothing and started releasing them and realized it was a big underground audience for Hawkwind and, and, and started the label as quite a success with that, with that money he made from that. And he loved the Barracudas. I mean, his band back in France called Mystere 5 had covered Shakes in Action. It's all, you know, it's all a family thing, really, rock and roll. And yes. he came, I remember he came up to us at the Rock Garden, I think it was, and said, you know, I'm Frenchie, I'm from Flickknife. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, so what? I never heard of it. He said, you know, I love your band. I want to make a single. And I was like, no, I'm interested because we didn't have, we didn't have a label. And, no, you know, some labels were interested, but it was very tricky after getting dropped by a major to get picked up by another one, even though there was lots of people at major labels very sympathetic to us. Uh, but I couldn't really sell it because, you know, the biggest label in the world at the time, it just dropped us. So Frenchie swooped in and we made a single called Inside Mind, which was very well received which was a kind of garage punk psychedelic song, very much in the bird's mold, uh, thanks to Robin's brilliant uh, uh, melody um, and my rather dopey psychedelic type lyrics. But that, yeah, and then we, then we were started to make an album for Frenchie in a little studio in Brixton, which we didn't finish because he ran out of money in classic indie uh, style. Um, I remember that phone call from a call box. So uh, when we're getting the rest of the money to finish the album, well, well uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Uh, right. Okay. So uh, in a French accent and um, basically uh, that those tapes lay around. Then we put out a 12 inch eventually on flick knife called flick knife called house of kicks, which is a great 12 inch with three of the tracks from the original sessions, which we then re-released eventually in full. But, so that album didn't get finished, but then another French label did pick us up and, and make two albums with us. That, and this is when you did Meantime. Yeah, Meantime was on Closer. So that was another French thing um, because, yeah, after the first French man uh, uh, <laughs> couldn't finish the album, weirdly, then we were really a bit, a bit 
out of sorts, you know, and it was like, oh, we, you know, what are we going to do? And the rhythm section had left and me and Robin, you know, well, we were determined to keep the band together. You know, we didn't have a lot to say to each other at that point, but the band is a band, you know, so we found a new rhythm section, uh, including J Jim Dixon, who became a vital part of the band, our new bass player and from Australia. Um, and we had a drummer for a while, Terry Smith, a uh, Londoner. Yeah, and then Philippe Debris from Closer, who were based in La Havre, he contacted us. I remember Robbins came up to me and said, there's this guy, <laughs> this nut in La Havre who's got some money and he started a label. He's got a record shop called Closer Records in La Havre. And, you know, he'll give us like, you know, whatever, 10 grand to make an album. And we were like, okay. So off we went and um, <laughs> uh, bless Philippe. Uh, meanwhile, we recorded that at Starling Studios. Now, why is it called Starling? Because it's owned by Ringo Starr, or was. I think it still is, but it was on, on his estate in a building on his big estate outside London. And um, that was surreal. Like, you know, we had this producer, Pete Gage, who our drummer Terry knew. Um, I won't say how, but they did business together. And um, basically... He'd been in a band called Vinegar Joe. Uh, anyhow, oh, it's all, yes, totally. With old um, Robert Palmer and... Yeah, yeah. So um, he turned up and he was an okay producer. You know, he was pretty cool. So we recorded it in, in Starling and then mixed it in, in London. In a different, but it was great at Starling because I remember getting the bus out there every day for several, a couple of two, three weeks. And you'd arrive at the gates of this estate, you know, and you'd have to be alerted they'd be alerted that you were coming because the guard dogs that patrolled the estate which were large doberman pinchers had to be restrained and i remember once in my dopey way i turned up and i thought that's cool i phoned the guard house and everything was cool and i was like you know come in i'm wandering across the <laughs> across across the thing and suddenly i didn't even see them but suddenly this this enormous bloody dog has its muzzle in my face this doberman and i'm thinking remembering all the movies and cartoons and folk wisdom I've heard, don't look afraid. So I was just kind of like, oh, hello, Rover, thinking I'm going to die. You know, <laughs> eventually Rover was restrained. And, oh, sorry about that. You know, so it didn't rip your throat out. That's good. So and then that was probably the same day I was walking past the, the house and I thought, is that Ringo in the window? And I'll never know if it was. <laughs> that was a great that was a great studio. And we made a great album, you know, I mean, that, I, I'm, I wouldn't listen to it now, but I'm quite proud of Meantime. And people in Europe loved it, loved yes. it. Yes. And um, to this day, like, it's still considered a really great album of its, of its era. You know, I can't judge, but people really like it. So that's cool. I know, because it starts with Grammar of Misery, which is one of those tracks that is still well liked and sort of, you know, has has kind of huge amount of kind of publicity still, not publicity, but plays on various platforms, streaming sites. Yeah, we opened our our, our live set with that for years, like the original band, and for for some time thereafter, when we reformed, we would always start with it. It's a great song to kick off a set with that snap on the snare and the great chiming chords. You know, Robin's a a great songwriter and a great guitarist. You know, and like. Sure, when we started in 78, you know, he was a great punk guitarist, but he's become a really 
fine guitarist and he already was and at that point one thing and he said it himself in an interview actually like when chris wilson joined the band from the groovies which for us was so surreal i mean i could still wet myself even now retrospectively but mm-hmm. yeah, that was a very big deal. You know, I remember sitting in a, our, our manager's squat. Yes, our manager lived in a squat, says it all about the Barracudas at the time. <laughs> and um, we, Chris had joined. I won't even, it's a cool story, but I won't go into it. But anyhow, Chris ended up joining and we were sitting, me and Robin were in the squat and he had an acoustic guitar. We were doing Groovy's requests with Chris Wilson and he was playing these Groovy songs for us. I mean, I was just like, is this real? You know, but then when he joined the band and we and recorded Meantime, he really accelerated Robin's development as guitarist. And because, you know, Robin was like, shit, I really better get get on the case now as a guitarist because I'm playing with a great guitarist, which Chris is, make no mistake, an amazing vocalist, way, way, way better than me. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it challenged us both to raise our game. And I think we did, you know, I think we did as much as we could at the time. Yes. And how did you find your, your manager? Because getting a manager in, in rock and roll is quite a tricky one, isn't it? You, you know, people wow. don't go to college. I mean, at that time, he was a well-meaning soul, but he wasn't really a manager. He did his best and uh, he was a lovely guy. Um, but yeah, he was not really a manager in, in, in sort of classic rock and roll terms by any means. Uh, he wasn't yes. Colonel Parker. No, he said he, he definitely wasn't Colonel Parker. I wish he was. <laughs> um, or, you know, anyone like that. You know, the Did he manage Grant. to get you any good deals? Well, he was pretty good, actually, in some ways. You know, he managed our money as such as it was. It wasn't much. And he did keep us sort of on the rails. So, yes, he did have an important role. Um, but yeah, he wasn't in the classic manager mold. I think he realized that himself. How did Chris Wilson end up in London, by the way? Well, he fell out with Cyril Jordan, basically. I mean, we had a friend during the summer of love in 1981. There was a shop at Kensington Market. And a guy who worked there, a Greek guy, he used to make, he was a tailor. He made these incredible clothes. We wore them all the time on stage. Uh, He'd been to San Francisco where the Groovies were based and met them and met Chris and Cyril. And then he said, well, you know, Chris has fallen out with Cyril really badly. He's going to come to London. And I was like, (laughs) I was very strategizing. I gamed it. And I was like, oh, you know, very casually. Oh, tell me when Chris gets here. You know, then I bided my time counting the days. And then one day, sure enough, I'm introduced to Chris Wilson. And then we got, he's, he came and saw the Barracudas and he was like, fuck, you know, these guys rock, you know? And then it was like, um, we played a gig at the marquee. It was heaving and we were on it. You know, we were on it. That's a famous gig of ours. And when Chris came on and played slow death and teenage head with us, which was unreal, you know, people went crazy. I mean, this was one of the flaming groovies, you know, one of the greatest rock and roll bands in history, really. And, then Chris was like, well, these guys, you know, he said, oh, we got, we know about dropout, you know, we could see that you were dressing in the same way we were on things like the cover of Jumping in the Night, you know, and we really dig you and Cyril, Cyril and I were listening to it and we were like, these guys are cool, you know, and, you know, it's nice to meet you and play with you, but, you know, I'm doing other stuff. And, but then we kept, he kept hanging around with us and then he kind of just fell in. And then one day it was like, well, we're making this album. 
you know, you want to play on a few songs. And before we know it, he played them on the mall and he was writing songs. In fact, one of the highlights of the Barracudas for me was we wrote a song together on Meantime called Be My Friend Again, which Chris sings in his best John Lennon and your bird can sing voice, which he does very well. And I wrote the lyrics. And I remember when I got the, the label, the, the copy of the album from Closer, I looked at the label and it said, you know, Gluck Wilson. I was like, oh yeah. You know, <laughs> because I just thought I have written a song with one of the Flaming Groovies. You know, I mean, to me, that was just like, it is it hit the apex. I mean, you know, this is a band I really, really revere, you know, and to have had the privilege of working with and writing songs with, with one of their members. It's a magic that never goes away, you know, that sort of thing. Yes, it's a absolutely. It's a teenage dream come true. It is a, it is a teenage dream. I think that was, um, no, that was the Bay City Rollers who did a line called It's a Teenage Something. But then, you know, 83 is quite an interesting year for me because that's when indie pop becomes a really quite a genre because it was the years of the it was the year that smiths appeared and they they released their first single on their first album and and from 83 to 87 indie the jingly jangly world of indie pop was sudden sudden something else so how did you having done your second album often with a lot of bands i've interviewed most bands have a five-year narrative you know they get together they have 12 months honeymoon period you know, John Peel gives them a play, they get a John Peel session, first album, things good, second album, not so good, third album, normally bad. And, um, you know, so most bands don't last after five years. So how did you sort of start navigating through the 80s when things started changing musically? Uh, it was difficult. And, you know, I don't want to get into it in a kind of a downbeat way, but it's a very great misfortune. The Barracudas broke up when they did for reasons that weren't very good. Um, but I mean, after, after Meantime, which, you know, did really well, you know, on, in those days, you know, you could do all right. I mean, we did some great tours of Europe. We were always going back and forth to Europe and playing amazing shows, really, for audiences that loved us, you know, especially in, 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 in France, Spain and stuff. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's hard to, I mean, I guess Meantime must have sold about 20,000 copies, which now that would be a big deal but then it wasn't bad you know i mean for an indie band that was respectable and it enabled closer which did have some success with other groups he was very good at acquiring foreign properties that were would do well in france it was such a big rock and roll underground scene in france at the time you know um it was non-stop so we were able to make a second album for Closer called Endeavor to Persevere, which we recorded at Rockfield. We went back to Rockfield. That was a dreamy session. Session. The only problem was we hadn't, didn't have many new songs because we'd been touring solidly. And this can be a real curse in a way. We, we'd been playing the best gigs of our lives, and great audiences, got loads of media coverage in Europe, you know, but the problem was Robin didn't primarily didn't have time to write new songs, focus on it. So we arrived at Rockfield with some decent sketches and some other stuff, but it didn't, we didn't, with Meantime, you know, we'd been playing the songs live for a long time, some of them for years before we made the album and it shows, whereas Endeavor to Persevere, we 
uh, I really hadn't played the songs live, and it, it does sound a bit uh, un, unprepared in that way. It's too schooled. You know, we, we rehearsed really hard, but you can't replace honing a song in front of a good in front of a live audience. Yes. But it's an, al it's an album I, I really love, actually, and it has some great songs. Another one I wrote with Chris. Some of my best songs I wrote with Robin, some lovely covers. But it really wasn't the way we were. And then, unfortunately, things happened, not to dwell. And in the end, we broke up initially at the end of 1984 on a high, which was just so stupid. But we went, we were having a difficult time. We, we needed a new label label. I mean, Closer was great and stuff, but we needed another label like EMI that could really back us and develop us and push us properly. Uh, because we had a developing international audience. You know, we had stuff released on Bomp in the States and this, that, and the other. We were being played on college radio in the States constantly. And, you know, it's just very sad that we broke up when we did, but, you know, that's life. Um, and when we did, we did make three pretty good albums in a row. And eventually, of course, we reformed. <laughs> yeah, but before the reforming, what did you do then for the rest of the 80s? Did you stay in London? Uh, well, actually, yeah, yeah, I lived in London. I mean, <coughs> excuse me, I mean, 84. So yeah, end of 84, we break up. Early 85, I made an EP for Closer with a few people, including Jim from the Barracudas. Um, and then I, I recorded a session in France with some amazing people in Paris. Uh, Eric Debris and Charles Herbier from uh, Metallurban and Dr. Mix and John Caddo from the Diodes and Mark Jeffrey from Band of Outsiders. It was an all-star indie lineup. What but was the band called? We called ourselves Life Ahead and we would have had a release, but we, you know, he who hesitates is lost. The one label who wanted to release it, we didn't. Well, actually, French Epic, which is CBS, liked it a lot. And they had a meeting and they had to choose between signing us or signing the dogs who were a great, great French rock and roll band that we were very good friends with in the Barracudas. I mean, Robin was a very close friends with Dominique, their, their singer songwriter who died terribly young, sadly. And um, they decided to go for the French band, which is fair enough. They were great. And they already had a name in France, which my new band didn't. But then we turned down an indie label in London and it all kind of, the sessions were never released. They're great, great stuff. And then actually the magic happened because, I mean, I got married, I had kids, uh, started having kids. I was a journalist. I started writing books and I had a pretty good time. And then I'd always been good friends with Nikki Sudden from the Swell Maps, who was a real character. Um, it's sad so many of these people aren't alive anymore. But anyway, Nikki and I had been talking since the, oh God, early 80s, you know, about working together as, as recording artists, songwriters, and done demos and written songs together. And we hung out together a lot. We just got on, basically. Great guy, total character. Um, and uh, I knew Epic, his brother, you know, from Swell Maps, and we'd all hung out and gigged together in the very early days. So in any case, uh, beginning, um, I think it was like, yeah, summer 86, we were writing songs. We were both really into country music at that time, which I've always loved growing up in Canada anyway. And were you a Graham Parsons fan? 
Not, I mean, I mean real country. Oh, well, Jim Reeves. Yeah, people like that. And um, yeah, it's quite Jerry Lee, early Jerry Lee and stuff. Uh, and um, no, of course, Graham Parsons is awesome, but I was into like, you know, legacy, original country uh, that would have influenced him, for example. Right. And um, in any case, uh, I remember it was like the autumn of 1986. And I was in London having a good life, you know, uh, uh, expecting my first child and this, that, and the other. Uh, <laughs> Nicky Rings, who was always either touring or in the studio till the moment he died. And um, he just says sort of casually, I'm in Woodworm, which was Dave Pegg's studio up in, in England somewhere from Fairport Convention. I'm in here with Epic and Roland Howard from, you know, the birthday party. And, uh, you know, we're making uh, some stuff for, I guess it was Creation. I think that's who it was at the time. We could make our album. We'll just tack on 10 days. We're here anyway. And I'm like, okay. So <laughs> not being stupid. So I phoned Frenchie, who on, with, on, with whom I was on very good terms still. And always have been really. I, I have a love for Frenchie from Flicknight. But... I just went like, he had released Nikki's first solo album, incidentally. So there was a family again, you know. So I rang him, I remember like, Nikki's at Woodworm making an album with uh, Roland and Epic. And, uh, you know, they, they'll, they'll make an album, you know, because I talked to Frenchie about doing a solo album, which he was totally up for. And he's like, okay, how much do you need? You know, so off I went to, to Woodworm, like about two or three days later, or a week later, maybe after making my excuses to the pregnant wife, and um, off I took. And um, this is our new Buffalo Bill I'm talking about now, but I may as well get into that. So that's what happened, you know, in, in an important way musically for me. So I just happened to find myself with two, three of the greatest underground artists of their time. I mean, there was Roland Howard, who to me was the greatest guitarist of his generation. I don't say that lightly. There was competition, but yeah. no one could touch him. And I saw the birthday party early on in London and they were unreal. And he was, and I saw Crime in the City Solution and I saw these immortal souls, unreal guitarist, weird guy, unreal guitarist, genius. And I had the privilege of working with him, plus Epic, who was a fantastic drummer. And Nikki, who was a world-beating talent, and there's little old me who turned up with his lyrics, handwritten lyrics, and they'd already recorded a number of tracks for me to sing over, some of which I knew, some I didn't. And it was just incredible. You know, I mean, I'm in the studio with these guys. It was an amazing studio. It is an amazing studio in a converted church, Woodworm. And um, we had a fantastic en house engineer there. And I, you know, made an album that, I mean, I've never been happy with my vocals, but it became quite a, a legendary album, especially in Italy, apparently, you know. Yes. And did you meet yeah. Jeffrey Lee as well? Oh, yeah. Jeffrey Lee played on it. That was weird because that was through Frenchie. Frenchie knew him because of, uh, well, drug, drug uh, connections and so on. Jeffrey Lee, of course, was very involved with drugs and... I remember I only met him once properly where I went to a pub. I mean, I, I, I had absolutely loved Fire of Love, the first Gun Club album. It's a masterpiece. I didn't really follow them much after that. But, I, you know, Jeffrey Lee was a heavy hitter. I mean, you know, Fire of Love is a masterpiece of underground American music. And 
this little blonde guy, dyed blonde guy sitting in the pub looking a bit down on his luck and barely speaking and Frenchie's there trying to move it along. And it was like, you know, will you play some overdubs on the album? Because Frenchie said, it'll help sales, which it did, you know. And he's like, yeah, you know, for 50 pounds, you know, the sort of go and score scenario. And the deal was done. And he, we, he, he, he didn't come to uh, Woodworm, but he came down to the studio where we did some overdubbing in the production in London later and did his overdubs. And then it was produced by Tony Cohen, who was one of the great producers of the time. I mean, people forget him now, but he produced a lot of the early Nick Cave stuff, some birthday party stuff, a lot of very important Australian bands. And he was just, he was another guy who was completely out to lunch, but Jesus, could he mix, you know, wild. And him and Roland were very close. And I mean, I remember standing when Roland was doing some of his guitar overdubs. This was in London when we did the final overdubbing after Woodworm. And I was in there, it was a very small studio and I was just looking out, you know, he played this sort of take on the song and he like looks up and he goes, is that all right? And I'm like, I don't know, because there's nothing to compare it to. You know, I'd never heard anything like it. He just did this first take of this insanely brilliant freeform stream of consciousness lead guitar. And I'm like, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> I'm like, what do I say? It's like, you know, Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Are they all right? I guess yeah. so. <laughs> you know, so you you know, squeeze, that, it was a, it was a, a really thrill. A really thrilling experience. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Does it feel a bit weird because actually they're all dead? Well, you know, it's not so yet. I often say like from that scene, you know, that album, I'm the last man standing. And it's sad because I remember when Epic died, which was a while before Nicky and Roland. At that time, not he was the first person I'd been close to as a musician and a friend and who I'd worked with who died. And he was only in his early 30s, bless him. We were all terribly shocked, you know, and then, uh, you know, then Nikki died and that was awful, you know, and, and I, I remember I had a, we had a mutual friend in Australia, Nikki, you know, a lovely woman who'd actually tried to manage my I knew Buffalo Bill lineup at one point, poor soul. Um, and she rang me and said, oh, you know, uh, Nikki's died would you tell Roland? And I, I mean, Roland and I had no chemistry or anything really at all, although we, we, we worked well in the studio, but as people, we were so utterly different, you know? And anyhow, I rang Roland, I'll still remember that. And I said, you know, Nikki's died. And the first thing he said was, oh my God, both brothers, you know, because his, their parents were real sweethearts. We'd both stayed with them when we were recording our new Buffalo Bill. And it was tragic, you know, and then, <laughs> Not long after that, he get a call and then Roland's died. And it was like, and then of course, Jeffrey Lee had died in the meantime. But I, as I said, I wasn't close to him in any way. Not that that diminishes the sadness of his dying so young, of course. But yeah, I'm the last man standing. It, it is weird. Like it's true. I don't dwell on it, but I think five of us made that album and I'm the only one who's like alive and it's just not right. But I also lived a very different life to those guys. I mean, you know, I was, I'd, gone way past using drugs at that point. I wasn't on the road all the time. I didn't have the health and safety risks those people ran every day, you know? And 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the world lost great talents when it lost all those people. And I'm blessed that A, I'm still alive and B, I can talk about having worked with them, you know. Yes, absolutely. Because then after that project, you know, we get into the late 80s and again, things kind of musically change. You know, we got the dance scene coming in. There was also the Seattle grunge scene. So did you go back to your writing and academia or did you stay, stay with the, the sort of music? Because you've been in a lot of other bands, haven't you? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of, yeah, it's a really uh, a crazy puzzle, you know, after that to put together in memory in retrospect. After I knew Buffalo Bill, I made an EP for Flick Knife with the same guys, mostly called Burning Skulls Rise, which was a song that was covered later by Roland and Lydia Lunch. Um, and strange, it became a goth favorite. I still can't believe that. But anyway, it appears on about 10 different goth compilations. I'll never forget the day I discovered that randomly. I thought, I'm a goth artist. I've arrived. <laughs> um, you know, all these crazy compilations from Italy with people like Psychic TV and, you know, Alien Sex Fiend and Jeremy Gluck here with Burning Skulls Rise. Um, so anyway, uh, after that, yeah, I mean, it's, I didn't do a lot of music. I wanted to, but I had a young family and I had to make a living. I was a journalist and this and that. Many years passed. 1989, 90, we reformed the Barracudas for about three years at that point and made an album which didn't really gel, although it had some good songs, um, which the only, the only really good thing about it was it was produced by Andy Chernoff from The Dictators, who I adore. And that was fun meeting him, working with him. He's a lovely guy. And, so, I, the, and why did you reform, by the way? Oh, I, I think I remember it was funny, actually. I was just like at home and Robin Rag. We hadn't spoken in a couple of years, probably. And he was like, oh, going on and on about, I'm like holding the phone. And he's like, I want to reform the band. And it should be like it was in dropout time. And just do fun pop music and all this sort of stuff. He may have been high. But anyway, he sold it really well. And I was like, how can I possibly do this? But of course I did it, you know, it's a sucker punch. So um, I uh, got together with him in a new, new rhythm section um, and we made the album with Andy Chernoff. We did some, we did a tour in Europe, which actually wasn't half bad. Um, was, this, was this the album, What You Want Is What You Get? No, this is the one before it called Wait For Everything. Right. Uh, so we, we toured, it was about 1991, two, I think. So we did that for two or three years. We did a lot of great recording of demos and tracks and put stuff on compilations and this and that. But it fizzled out uh, due to lack, well, a lack of demand, but our will kind of diminished. And then I did all sorts, then I just got into all sorts of other stuff that goes on and on. I got into, I eventually got into electronic stuff and just did anything, you know, of spoken word stuff, ambient stuff. It goes on and on. Like you're talking about 20 years of it in the end. You know, where do I begin or end? Yes. Um, and yeah, yeah. And in 2004, the Barracudas reformed and made an album called The Barracudas, which has a single on it called What You Want Is What You Get. And it was a great album, actually. And that's with Robert Coyne on bass, who's the son of Kevin Coyne, uh, who's a great musician and songwriter in his own right. Um, and that lineup played and recorded on and off for better part of 15 years. We only stopped about three years ago. 
Right. Because you've done a lot of kind of very, a lot of ambient music, yeah. haven't you? Collaborating <laughs> yes. with a lot of different people. So is this just another part of your brain? Yeah, I mean, the funniest thing that happened with that whole scene was that I can't even remember. Oh, I remember. I was on Facebook and suddenly this friend request turned up. I'm trying to remember when this was, about 2004, five. Um, and uh, must have been, I guess. I can't remember because I know a bit later, actually, 2008, nine. Anyway, it's Marty Thau. Now, some of you won't know who that is, but he's one of the great figures of underground music. He discovered suicide in the New York Dolls. He produced the original Dolls demos. He co-produced the first Suicide album, and I'm a raving, raving Suicide Alan Vega fan. Alan Vega and Suicide are, are you know, they're the craft work of America. I mean, they're incredible, genius, total genius. So I'm like, Price is Marty Thau, you know, not your average friend request. So I messaged him somewhat tentatively and said, why, why in God's name have you friended me in a nice way? You know, some <laughs> nobody from nowheresville, you know, and he's like, I'm interested in people who make music. I thought, well, okay, I guess I just about qualify. But then we, then I said to him, could I interview you, you know, for a magazine I was writing for? And he did a great interview. It was fascinating. Amazing old school, came up in the 60s, hard as nails, New York producer and manager. They don't make him like that anymore. He talks like someone in the mafia, you know, it was just fantastic. You know? Like Jackie Mason meets Tony Soprano, basically. So... <laughs> We had these conversations. Eventually, he goes, I kept on sending him some of my music, and he was like, Yeah, he would send me these little sort of dismissive critiques. You know, he didn't mince his words, Marty, God knows. Then one day, I sent him something. He was like, I like, I remember he wrote me, he sent me an email, I like this song. That was like from him after weeks of like semi abusive rejection. It was like, Christ. And then, <laughs> and then almost immediately, it's like, would you like to sing a song of mine that I recorded? I'm like, yeah, okay. So he says, I have this track that Marty Rev wrote, the keyboardist from Suicide, on his instrumental album that I always wanted to put a lyric on called Whisper. I'm like, yes, I'm there. <laughs> so he's like, um, Martin, Marty Rev said it's okay if we use it, uh, you know. We'll record it and I'm going to start a label and you get back into music. So I was like, okay, Marty. So we were getting on pretty well. So then began weeks of him schooling me in the vocal. It was a fantastic experience because this guy had produced some of the biggest names in music, you know. And he was like, he knew his, you know, he was like, this syllable of this word has to be pronounced in this way and sung in this way. And the funny, I remember we had these great phone conversations. My favorite was when he rang up in his Bronx accent or whatever. And he's trying to tell me about the diction of the main word in the song, whisper. And he's going, when you sing whisper, sing whisper. And I'm like, what do you mean, Marty? Whisper? No, whisper. I'm like, whisper? But it was his bloody accent. He meant whisper whisper and i'm thinking whisper whisper but it was his new york accent finally we understood each other and then we recorded this track and sadly i mean he did his best to get a label off the ground but it didn't really happen but it's the best vocal i've probably ever done and completely lost and then meanwhile yes i worked with loads of other amazing people i could go through a long list it would take a long time 
but yeah, very lucky to work with some, some really great talents, actually. Plus, yeah. I just generated tons of my own stuff just on my computer. And then I made an album, uh, a regular album in, in 2013 with Rob Coyne from the Barracuda, as I mentioned, uh, which I'm really proud of, but sadly didn't really get anywhere. And then it kind I did a lot of electronic stuff with a fellow called Don Tyler from L.A., who's a genius, really. Uh, he's a mastering engineer, in fact, really. And um, then I went to art college when I was 58, and I kind of took my eye off the ball with music, and I haven't really gone back to it because, you know, I've done my time. I've done, I gave it 40 years, and that's not bad. Yes, it's absolutely amazing because, you know, as I was on sort of, as you do in the world of Bandcamp, looking at, you know, listening to all your, a lot of your solo stuff. And it, yes, and it's, um, it sounded quite therapeutic. Yeah, I mean, it was. I mean, actually, that's a good word for it. I suppose, I mean, I've said in a few interviews, like when I got my first PC, which would have been about 1997, I suppose having, because I don't play an instrument, so having always been reliant on other people to make songs or whatever, uh, I suddenly realized as I slowly learned how to do it, that I could be self-reliant. I could compose my own tracks. Now, I never did music because I can't play music, but from a kind of aesthetic artistic viewpoint, I used a kind of crude collage technique to put together tracks using loops and samples and my voice. And then gradually I found people to collaborate with who would, who would take up more of the, the, the backing, uh, so to speak, uh, part of it. Uh, and I would just concentrate on vocals and lyrics or, or poems or whatever again and do singing or spoken word pieces. But yeah, it's been a fantastic, um, journey really in that respect and I'm hoping to soon re-release some of my lost electronic collaborations in the next year three or four albums worth actually they'll be out in the next year or so yes and how have you managed because I noticed the barracudas of you've archived all that material haven't you so that looks like it's pretty well being sorted out uh, well, actually, I mean, Christ, like any band in our position, you know, seriously, over the years, I mean, it's all happened, you know, first it was CDs, and then it was deluxe CDs, and then it was vinyl, and then seven inches, and 12 inches, and picture discs, we've done it all, you know, we're like sort of reissue sluts, like most bands of our generation, so, but uh, there, there's, there's rumors, there's discussions at the moment about even more extravagant reissue packages because there's a wonderful line that some people are familiar with you know if you live long enough you get to do a lot of weird shit and i've done a lot but apparently it's not over yet you know because people keep popping up and saying we want to reissue this or that by the barracudas now a lot of it's also as you, as happens over the years you know people sell the rights on and someone else sells them on some of them we have some of them we don't but um I've managed to get I knew Buffalo Bill reissued a couple of times on CD and once very nicely on vinyl in Spain. And the Barracuda stuff, you know, has a life of its own. I mean, Dropout's been reissued on vinyl by a Dutch uh, label and meantime came out as a French picture disc on Closer when it revived about five years ago. So, and there's, and there are conversations at the moment about more 
sort of deluxe, you know, Barracudas reissues eventually, but I don't have the details yet. It's be premature, but it's yes. fun, you know, because it's just like, it's like the mafia thing. You know, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in, you know, and you, you get an email and it's kind of like, so-and-so wants to reissue such and such. And I'm always like, yeah, let's do it. Because I'm always like, I don't know how long I'm going to live. Might as well do it. But the other guys, we have to have a discussion. And Robin really handles the business because he's much better at it than I am, frankly. So yes. in the end, I defer. But there's undoubtedly going to be more Barracudas reissues. But yeah, I mean, there's tons of them strewn all over the place for the last, well, since Dropout first came out on CD, which was about God knows when, 1985 or something. It's been constant, really, yeah, of all been... for all sorts of formats. Well, now vinyl, because you've also done all these other bands like Civilization Machine, the Carbon Manual, the Psychology Vandals. So is this all material that you've also kept hold of and the rights and the publishing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have it. But the problem is, you know, I've never been able to secure decent audiences and deals and labels for it, which is a big frustration. It doesn't torment me, but it can be frustrating. I mean, the Carbon Manual, some of the best recorded work i've ever done and hardly any hardly anyone's ever heard it for example um that's the trio based it was based in bristol with two brilliant guys um ian weir and cliff g and we did some really fine gigs and music you know but it just hasn't reached the audience it's intended for and there's other you know i've done plasticon with don Tyler, this fellow from la which is fantastic which will be reissued eventually now thank god and maybe get a few more listeners um but yeah, it can be frustrating. But, you know, the fact is that even that <laughs> after all this time and it becomes abstract and obscure, I mean, I don't sit here every day thinking, wow, you know, I made dropout, although I'm pleased I did. But it's 40 years ago. So it's kind of like. It's, it's weird, you know, it's funny. Sometimes I think the funniest thing, you know, that never goes away, which is gratifying and somehow bewildering, is that like when I was about. 15 and I was listening to bands I loved then who I still love actually uh, in fact are the bands you end up listening to the bands you loved when you were 15 yes um, everything, everything else falls by the wayside I listen to who's next that's what I listen to you know but um like I did when I was 14 so you know really I just think for some people and they do exist because I hear from them occasionally a bit surreally you know my band especially the barracudas and to an extent i knew buffalo bill but especially the barracudas means as much to some people as the who mean to me and to me that's just like i just don't get it because i wouldn't and i shouldn't but it's also a beautiful thing yes absolutely <laughs> well i always remember lemmy from motorhead and actually david bowie as well because they were both born the same year both you know it was little richard was the the, the artist they'd often say was their kind of, I don't know, first love and the most influential person. And and I always remember Lemmy saying, you you know, you can't help but love those bands, like you said, when you were at a certain age. So for him, it was Eddie Cochran, you know, Buddy Holly, you know, and obviously Little Richard and then Elvis Presley and then, you know, seeing the Beatles and the Stones. But that that little period before that was the music that will always was always with him you know and the same with David Bowie so it's yeah you can't be the same person you can't be 14 16 again can you you can only be that that moment once in your but, life but you can when you listen to them that's the beauty of it because it transcends time doesn't it I mean if I put on <coughs> you know who's next 
it doesn't matter what age I am now, it's totally irrelevant. I'm still hearing it when the first time I put the needle on and I heard Bab O'Reilly when I was 14, when I first got it, you know, when I would have bought it when I was that age. And it's, it's only deepened my, my, my reverence and love of it, the, the, you know, the duration I've been listening to it. Mm. You know, and I guess that's the way my father felt about the classical music he loved. You know, it's just like first time he heard the Fifth Symphony and the thousandth time. What's the difference except the thousandth time is actually better? Yes. Well, I think that's <laughs> when when you realize you get to a certain age when you just don't understand Billie Eilish. You think, I just don't get Billie Eilish. But then I'm not 14, so I wouldn't get Billie Eilish. And I think, it's, yeah, that's an interesting point. And I often just comes up, you know. I haven't listened to new bands in about really honestly heard really made an effort to or listened to new bands in over 10, 15 years now. The last band actually that I really got into was Placebo, believe it or not, about 2000 when they released Without You, I'm Nothing, Nothing, which is a great, great album. And I really, I really fantastic album. But that was the last band I really got into thoroughly. I remember I said to someone, is there something wrong with me? Like, I just don't listen to any new bands. Like, my kids play me all this stuff, and I'm just like, it sounds like this, it sounds like that. You know, leave me, leave your old man alone. And um, they just went, you're just saturated, like me. I said, you know, I, I've been listening to, I have listened to new music day in, day out. Explored it, learned about one band after another, listened to all their music, and got from one to the next. And, you know for whatever length of time for each one. And I've just reached my limit. I'm saturated, but I can still listen to the stuff I listen to. I just can't really take in anything new. And also it is stylistic, as you just said. I mean, you know, I can't relate to this. And I, how would I? You know, I mean, it's the same old deal. You know, I'm past the point where I can really relate to what people who are 14, like you said, are listening to. It just doesn't interest me. It's not my world. But the interesting thing is a lot of them do listen to Eddie Cochran and the Beatles and the Stones and Bowie and the list goes on, as you're well aware. And that, that tells the tale. Now, whether people in 40 years will be listening to Billie Eilish the way I listen to The Who or you listen to early Bowie and go, this still completely well, puts me in a place of some sort of ecstasy. Who knows? Yes. I, I, I don't deny it's possible, but it certainly wouldn't be them for me. It's always going to be the who. <laughs> that's, my, that's my prime imprint. Yes, absolutely. And I think I'm sure they will be sort of looking, listening to those bands when they, that they played when they were 14, 16. I'm sure. When they're in their 60s going, my God, this sends me, takes me right back to that moment. But look, well, just, just one of those corny questions, but I love asking it. If you could have said something to your 16 or 18-year-old self starts now, is there some sort of word of wisdom or words of wisdom or bullet points that you would say, oh, yes, I've got a few tips that I've, I would tell anybody, especially myself when I was 16? Two things. Don't break up the band. Secondly, don't lose your hair. That's it. That's it. Yes. Do you feel that you could have done with band therapy? <laughs> I could have done with therapy. I don't want to speak for the rest of the band. That wouldn't be fair. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> anyway, maybe I laughed a bit too manically. Yes. That's your answer. Yeah. There you go. Well, look. <laughs> no, band well, I saw that there was a documentary about bands reforming and uh, the police reformed and 
obviously everyone was having a great time apart from two or three members sting and stewart so they had to have band therapy and i think they just got out in the open what they really felt and it was like okay i kind of understand a bit more now perhaps i won't won't talk quite so much i don't know i mean for me obviously you know in my modest circumstances a band that successful with that wealth and, and celebrity resulting and vast enduring popularity what they've got to have therapy about i can't possibly imagine but i guess they're entitled to it you know it's it's hard which we know which which butler should i have on the road to today i can't really <laughs> i can't really relate to that and if they have problems my heart goes out to them <laughs> So when you said you went to art school, that wasn't as a lecturer, that was actually as a student. I know. I was what I called the stale fresher. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing was, and I came to the end of a job, a contract that I was involved in a project. And um, I was like, what should I do? <clears throat> I couldn't make up my mind. And I had a couple of months to decide. And it's like, kind of like, it was like, go to art college. And it was one of the, I, I graduated last July. I did an MART. Well, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life, basically. It was like being in a band again, just surrounded by weirdos and misfits who all just sort of hung out together. And I discovered that I actually have a, a quite a flair for, well, I've always been a good writer, but I have a flair for academia and I'm very good at, at writing. So I applied that to writing about artists and art. And I also have a bit of a knack for visual art. So who knew? But it was, it's been an fan, absolutely fantastic experience. Yes, absolutely. And what, what then are you hoping to do for the next couple of years? Uh, well, I'm fiddling around with a part-time PhD. I'm not sure where that's headed, but I'm enjoying the process. And uh, yeah, kind of just coasting at the moment somewhat having, well, I mean, you know, I've worked most of my life and I've done music most of my life and the two things are related, not always exactly the same, but I'm in parallel tracks. I've been incredibly prolific with both and you know life goes on so i don't know what the next adventure is i'd like to stay in academia if i can because i love it and i've discovered a a late blooming um talent i suppose for aspects of it um or at least i can apply my skills and i've always been i mean i've always been very aware of and in love with art you know as so to speak um and artists but I've realized like there's a whole new world to explore. Like when I first got those three albums from my brother when I was 13, except it's a new, a new deck of cards and I'm just gonna play it and see where it takes me. I don't really know. I mean, I'm gonna make some new, I may make some new music. It's more likely to be spoken word, but with, with the tracks, but I'm not that bothered. I did a lot of, well, I did some, pretty radical sound experimental electronic stuff as part of my degree, um, which I'm really pleased with. <laughs> but, you know, it's not gonna be in the charts. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I really don't know, David. I don't really know, I'm coasting, but I'm enjoying the ride. I mean, you know, I've packed 40 years full of all kinds of crazy stuff, you know, and it ain't over till it's over. No, this is true. Look, I think. I think Bailey is calling us, isn't it? Anyway, look, Jeremy, thank you ever so much for this. And if you want, I can always send you the link and you can always post it if you want somewhere. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for the invite. Yes. Well, look, thank you ever so much. And uh, take care. And yes, just keep rocking. That's what we say. Or 
something. Anyway, look, have a nice night. Take care. See you. Take care. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation. (laughs) I know I could edit it out, but it always makes me laugh how I'm sort of fumbling around at the end there. Anyway, look, that was me in conversation with Jeremy Gluck from the Barracudas. And as you probably gathered from that interview, lots of other projects as well. And he's doing a part-time PhD, fine art, and is an editor of the SWND. I know, I stuttered. And solo projects coming out, or reissues anyway. Look, this has been David East of The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, don't make it horrible, please, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived um, on yes, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. And that's it. That's all I've got to say. Have a great evening or great week. Stay safe.